Welcome to Pop Culture Retro, which was recently voted the 15th best podcast by the residents of the Golden Years Retirement Community in Boca Raton, Florida. Each show, we'll revisit some of your favorite pop culture memories with insider and outsider perspectives. Now, please help me welcome your hosts, Ike Eisenman and Jonathan Rosen. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Pop Culture Retro. I'm one of your hosts, Jonathan Rosen, along with Ike Eisenman. And today we are thrilled to welcome an actor who I'm a big fan of, who you've probably seen in just about everything, including Civil Wars, SWAT, and recently This Is Us. Please help us welcome Peter Honorati. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Well, we want to talk about many of your roles, we want to touch upon what's going on now in Hollywood. But to start with, you grew up in New Jersey, which is regionally my neck of the woods. Uh, was your family at all into theater or performing arts in any way? No, nobody knew anything about what I did. And, and, <laughs> and, and in fact, if you look at my history, you'll know that uh, I have an MBA. I was 12 years in the business world before I threw it all away to become an actor. But I waited till my father was at his Florida house. So he wouldn't come around with a, you know, with a, a sledgehammer and say, "What the hell did I pay for all that school for?" You know. <laughs> so uh, no, nobody, uh, nobody in the family. I did have, I have an uncle. I had an uncle. Um, one of my father's brothers. His name was Valentino. Um, he actually, man, it's hard to say this nowadays, but I, I still admire him for it. He was a minstrel. He had. Uh, oh wow. Uh, and I have I have a tape of of records of him singing. Uh, he had a pretty good singing voice. My father's cousins on the Venturini side, uh, Jackie Venturini, who was my one of my father's best friend, died early uh, from a car accident when they were young. He had an incredible singing voice, um, but nobody nobody went into you know performance of any kind. Hmm. Well well, I, I was also reading, one of the things that I found fun on your site was uh, that you said you grew up and you got in a lot of trouble as a kid and, and got kicked out of Catholic school. So what happened there? What were some of the things that you got in trouble for? So I was just, I was, I was just talking about this the other day. Um, you know, Boonton, New Jersey is a beautiful little hamlet, sits on a hill 25 miles as the crow flies outside of New York City. And... Uh, that's where I grew up. And um, my first four and a half years in Catholic school, I, you know, I kind of got under the nuns, uh, you know, uh, habit there a little, a few times. And, uh, and, and I guess the straw that broke the camel's back was we had a nun come out from like Hoboken or one of the, one of the bigger uh, cities. And, you know, she started treating us kids like, like we were city kids, you know, and we really weren't, you know, uh, but she was Irish and it was St. Patrick's day and we were singing all these Irish songs. And I don't know how I knew this, but I know now years later that I was absolutely right. I raised my hand and I said, Hey sister, um, you know, now that we sang all these Irish songs, since St. Patrick was Italian, how about we sing some Italian songs? <laughs> so she's, <laughs> She sent me up to the 250-pound principal, Sister Helen Ann, and uh, told her that I threw my hands up in the air. I stood up on my desk, and I said, come on, let's sing some Italian songs. So the next day, my father and mother came in, and there was a, 
a, a big, big, big hassle in Sister Helen Ann's office. And the next thing I knew, the next day, I literally walked down the hill one block to the public school, to School Street School, and got the shit beat out of me because I was a Catholic school kid. Oh, my God. I, I just want to say one thing. You know, it's funny. Italians, and, and I know Jews are the same way with me. We know everyone in history who was Jewish, and Italians are the same yeah. way. <laughs> you know, I have, a, I, have a, I have a quick side story to tell you about, about Jews and Italians. Um, uh, when I was doing improv comedy as a hobby, while I was still at McCall's Magazines on Park Avenue, I uh, came up with this character for a friend of mine, Gary Richmond, who was in the group. Um, we were at, we were at the uh, uh, Improv Olympics in uh, Second City. We had won the New York uh, version, and we went out to Second City to perform. And he had always done this great old Jewish character that I liked. So we were, we were getting ready to come into a doctor's office sketch. And I said, hook arms up with me, you know? And uh, <laughs> so we hooked arms up and we, we walked in and we created this character called the Kippermans, which was a Hasidic Jewish Siamese twin. Okay. Now, when we came back to New York, you'll see some pictures of it on, on my site. When we came back to New York, somebody sewed a shirt up for us. One half said, I heart. The other half said, New York. And we started doing some of the comedy clubs. He played the guitar. So he did the chords and I did the strumming. We each had one payas on the side of our heads. So this is a long story to get to. Every time we came off stage, either at a comedy club or we started doing actually like retirement parties for people in the garment district and things like that. People would say to me, you're Jewish, aren't you? And I go, no, I'm like, yes, you are, you're Jewish. I said, no, actually, I'm Italian Catholic. They said, same thing. Exactly. I said, exactly. I, said, <laughs> I said, there's there's common ground. Right. There's food and guilt, right? So <laughs> guilt, <laughs> Jews are passive aggressive, and Italians turn it into vendetta, right? Food, <laughs> Italians talk about it going in, and Jews talk about it going out. <laughs> And to me, that's the end of the similarities, but that's the common ground. You know? Oh, my God. Well, I mean, it's it's like pretty obvious you were a natural performer, but you didn't set out to become an actor at first. You worked at Ford. What what sparked the interest to, to take it up finally? Well, um, I was while I was at Ford, I, I had gotten my MBA at Ford and uh, um, my girlfriend at the time was working for uh, <clears throat> one of McCall's magazines, which I ended up a couple of years later uh, 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 running in the research department. Um, so we would, I'd go into the city and to meet her, I was, my office for Ford was in Newark, New Jersey. And uh, every other week we'd go to the improv. Now this is the days when Seinfeld was headlining. Um, you know, this is early eighties. Um Everybody, Mark Wiener, uh, Ron Darian, uh, Joe Piscopo, you know, and we'd ride home on the bus on Friday nights and I'd say, geez, you know, I think I could do that. She finally got so, you know, disgusted with hearing me say that, that she bought me a one night stand class in comedy from an entity called the Network for Learning in New York, that, which taught you everything all over the city from how to take care of your feet to doing stand-up comedy, right? In different spots in the city. So I took 
this one night class. Well, it turned out not to be stand up at all. It turned out to be improvisation. Uh -huh. And I met this group of people. Um, and, uh, you know, they said, oh, you should, you know, you should do this. And I go, no, nah, I'm not an actor. You know, and I went back to my hole in Ford in Newark. And, uh, you know, and then ab about a year or so later, Ford laid me off because the automobile business in the 80s was horrible, you know, early 80s. So I present I had done my master's thesis on this magazine at McCall's that my girlfriend worked for. So I presented it to McCall's and they hired me and created a position of director of marketing and research for four oh. of their publications. So now I'm back in the city <clears throat> and I started just going to workshop with these people that I met from that improv class. Um, and then we started performing at all the little shitholes in New York, you know, and this, uh, um, <laughs> this one woman who is now my wife uh, came from another <laughs> improv group and to direct the group. Now my wife was an accomplished improvisationist. She learned out here in LA and moved to New York uh, as, and she was a starving actress. So it, it turns out like after, after four years at McCall's, I had some of my research published in advertising age and um, all these big package good firms were calling to try and uh, try and steal me away. So I went into my boss's office and I said, uh, Hey, these people are trying to steal me away. I really want to stay here. Maybe you can help me out with, you know, my, my salary next year or bonus or whatever. And she said, well, the publisher doesn't know what you do. And I said, wait right there. I went into my office and I got a loose leaf notebook and I walked back in her office. I said, now you remember, I came to you from Ford Motor Company. If you learn anything there, you learn how to cover your ass. Okay. So I opened up the notebook and I had over the four years written notes about everything that I had pitched to her that affected a change in the magazine, whether it was ad placement or new editorial, uh, 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 uh you know, uh, sections or whatever. And uh, I said, well, who does the publisher think did this? And then she really got pissed off. So she started making my life miserable. Wow. So my then girlfriend, now wife, um, Jeanette <laughs> said, I think you could be an actor. And I said, really? So I can starve and have four jobs like you? Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so when I finally took the ice back off my eye, I uh, walked into my... <laughs> boss's office and i said look you can't fire me because my work is too good so i'm gonna quit next monday you make it so i can collect unemployment because i've never done that before and we're done so i left them with a 200 page research document for sales purposes that they only had to update and i went and took a crash course in commercials from a recovering alcoholic named bob collier um <laughs> and uh Within two weeks, I was on hold for a national commercial. Wow. Uh, I had no agents or anything. But you have to remember, this was 1986, 87. At that time, the stereotypes that they were looking for for commercials were Bruce Willis, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, and Tony Danza. I got a piece <laughs> of each. <laughs> 
amazing. Just that simple. Yes. So that's <laughs> that's and, no, and it that's totally cool. it totally works that way, especially in the commercial industry. There's this there's yeah. a type and a style for years, and if yeah. you fit that man and you've got any talent at all, you yeah. got a career. So man, well, I get it. Thing. Yeah, that's <laughs> the thing. And 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 Jeanette took my pictures to her agent. She had a really good commercial agent, and they said, "I get this guy work right." And since I had I had no training but improv, I realized, you know, my mark my marketing background sort of kicked in. I realized I could sustain a character for thirty seconds because of my improv training. But you know, <laughs> and so I made a living in commercials for the first two years, and then I got my first good TV job was on Kate and Alley. Oh, we can ask um, about that, yeah. <laughs> and and then and and when I the very day there's a great story. I don't know if you want to jump to it now, but Absolutely. the very day. Um, that we finished filming Kate and Allie. It was a Thursday night in front of an audience. Jeanette had already moved out here. We were already married. We'd just gotten married months earlier. And she moved out here because we were pregnant with Sonny, my first, my firstborn. And so I was flying back and forth to finish Kate and Allie. So I finished Thursday night. Friday, I don't know what the thing is with me and, uh, and St. Patrick, but Friday was St. Patrick's Day, Right. And I'm supposed to fly back at 2.30 from JFK for my son's birth. He's due that Monday. I get a call back for Scorsese in Rockefeller Center for wow. good <laughs> Oh, jeez. Right? So I called Jeanette and I went, yeah, I'm going to be late. <laughs> <laughs> so now, um, so I walk into the callback and you have to remember for the small roles, roles that I got, like I got, um, Scorsese was hiring real mob guys or cops who had retired, retired and who chased real mob guys. Right. <laughs> so we all had the same scene to read. And then if he liked you, he'd pick, he'd pick a role for you. So I walk in, there's all these guys with silver sweatsuits and patent leather sneakers and, and cigars right in the outer room. And this guy looks at me and he goes, what are you reading for? I go, well, I got the science for Sonny Bamboo. He goes, you know him? I go, no, I don't know him. He goes, I know him. You don't look nothing like him. <laughs> and I said, well, that's what they gave me. He goes, all right, God bless you, kid. You know, <laughs> so I go, <laughs> so that makes, makes me nervous enough, right? And I go into the office and now, um, I was, it was still close to my days in the business world. And my habit in those days, both from my improv training and because that's what you do in sales and marketing, was to make the meeting mine. No matter how nervous I was, I wanted to make the meeting mine. So my grandfather's name is Donato Scorsese. It's the exact same spelling as Scorsese without the S. So I made up a story. I told Scorsese, I said, listen, I said, I, before we do this, I got to ask you if we're related. Because I said to my grandfather, Donato Scorsese, I said, I'm going in to read for the great director, Martin Scorsese, today. And my grandfather says, wow, I think so. we have a cause in a one time, which take the S out of the name. So Scorsese goes, really? Really? <laughs> Because we can't find our relatives. I'm going, oh, I'm screwed now because I made the whole thing. <laughs> so, so I go, uh, I go. well, where, where are you from? He goes, 
Sicily. I go, no freaking way. We're not Sicilians. He goes, what are you? I go, eh, we're Napolitans. He goes, ah, eh, you guys drink too early in the morning. You want to do this? I go, yeah, let's do it. So we read the scene and I got a small role. Oh, oh man. <laughs> oh, God. That's just great stuff. <laughs> well, we're going to be touching about Goodfellas. I, I do want to go back to Kate and Allie. I was such a huge fan of that show. Um, you know, I, I remember when you were on there. She yeah. came in. We, I actually watched, uh, I looked at your early roles. I actually watched your after school special thing that you're oh, a little. Clip. But uh, how'd you get involved with Kate and Allie to begin with? How'd you get uh, cast on that? So I'm, I, my, um, my business wife, who I've been, she's now my manager for 37 years. Uh, she was my agent at first, Kay Lieberman, surname. She uh, has a company called Lieberman Zerman Management. They manage clients that are much bigger than me, but, but we've been together for a long time. And, um, and I love her. Like I love my wife. She sent me in for this, for this job. And uh, I have to tell you just on a side, I was up against uh meatloaf for the same oh, role my gosh wow yeah jeez so so i went i had to do i had to do like three callbacks Jeanette and i got married in june i had i had auditioned for the show in like march they gave me three callbacks between march and june and after we got married uh, we didn't go on our honeymoon because i said well, i don't know i don't know what's happening with kate and Allie, right so finally, I just said, to hell with it uh, by September, you know, and we went on our honeymoon. I came back and I got the job and um, it was so great. It was a great place to be in the beginning, except for, you know, a lot of shows like that when they're in their last year, camps develop. Um, Susan and Jane, who were like best friends when the show started, they were kind of in separate camps. Not Not that they didn't like each other, but I don't think... One person liked the people who were running the show in the last season and one person was okay with them. And, you know, it was just it, it, those, those show politics that happen after five years of, a, of, of doing something together. <clears throat> so that was a great lesson to me to see that such a successful show could have all this stuff going on in, in the background, you know? And so, and, and somehow I ended up in Susan's, uh camp even though everyone no there was no you know uh animosity or anything like that but um i remember susan saying uh hey I i'm gonna watch i'm gonna watch a uh, wise guy come up to my dressing room let's watch wise guy right so i go up to her dressing room and watch wise guy and she goes you know this is the beatles dressing room i went get the hell out of here because it was wow. filmed at the ed sullivan theater wow. we filmed you know, and and Jane's uh, was was uh, the was Elvis Presley's dressing room. You know, so I mean, I'm just I just immersed into you know all this entertainment and history, and I, I was like you know blindsided. And the funny thing was, at the end of each hiatus, uh, uh, not the big hiatus when you go out, go off for the year, but they would have every three weeks they'd have a week break. Um, all the techies that ran the show uh, would would gather us on what used to be the end of the proscenium of the Ed Sullivan show. And they'd give a little history lesson. And then we walk down through the bowels of the Ed Sullivan theater and come up in the back door of McGee's pub. And they <laughs> said that at one, at one time, the Ed Sullivan theater was not, was never dark. It had Ed Sullivan 
It had the Jackie Gleason show. It had uh, a Gary Moore truth or consequences. Mm. It was never dark, you know? So it was really cool that, you know, to, to, you know, to walk the same steps that Jackie Gleason sure. used to walk to take a pop in the middle of the show. You oh, know? my God. Well, yeah. was it at all, was it at all daunting to come into an established show like that as a regular? It was, it was, but, um, Again, and one of the reasons was that feeling of the, of the two camps, you know. But yeah. it turned out, I mean, you know, I, I I stuck to myself, you know, and 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 having just had a a son, you know, everybody was like, "Oh, you had a baby," you know. And you know, when a young actor, well, I wasn't that young. I started late, but you know, when when you start to build a family and you're making a living as an actor, these older actors they understand, you know, what is what a hard thing that is to do. So they were really welcoming about that. That sort of, sort of, you know, passed over everything and it, it felt good. In fact, there was one point where I played the, I played the, the uh, building super and I was always like, you know, sniffing after Susan St. James. Right. <laughs> so uh, I said to her one time, I said, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be interesting if my character did finally get a date with you and you find out he's just a big blowhard that he's intimidated by women. He's not not really a bad guy, you know. He's. I come back from hiatus, and they had written an episode where I take her to an Italian wedding and I give her a kiss and all this stuff, and uh, it was just great. So they were really welcoming to me. And the guys that ran the show, Saul Turtletob and Bernie Orenstein, uh, they ran it for that last year or so. Mm -hmm. um, they were wonderful. They made me feel really comfortable. In fact, uh, um, I, you know, I, I had only a couple of episodes when they first hired me. We we're in, uh, we were in uh, William Sonoma off Madison Avenue. Jeanette and I uh, around Christmas time, and um, Saul Turtletop comes up to Jeanette and goes, "Mrs. Honorati, Mrs. Honorati, get whatever you want. We're picking up your son's option." your brother your husband's option right so uh, so you know i knew i was going to get more episodes and that, that was great you know that's fantastic oh, man the uh you you touched upon it briefly but when you come in already jane Curtin and susan st james are already like real established stars i mean so what are some of your memories just about them I, you know what so accessible like i was i remember one time sitting in the uh in the makeup chair next to Jane right and she had been there for a while and <laughs> she looks at me and she goes yes I'm still here she goes when your head is this big it takes a long time you know <laughs> <laughs> so I you know and I said to her something I I, I you know I, I I finally got the nerve up to ask her I said you know Jane I said can you tell me about Chevy Chase I said I never I never quite got him. I never thought, you know, that he was sort I mean, he, he flew off the show and he had a great career, but he just didn't seem to fit with the, you know, with the, with the broad talents that, that, you know, first came out in that first, I'm friends with Lorraine Newman now too, by the way, but Jane said that Chevy Chase was hired as a writer. <laughs> hmm. Now, interesting story is when I came out here, there was a guy named Archie Hahn who was one of the uh, first people to create the groundlings, which is where Lorraine Newman came out of everybody, you know, um, 
came out of. And uh, Archie was, I, I was doing a commercial with him and uh, he told me that we were just sitting there talking. He said, you know, he said, I had this opportunity to do a show back in the seventies. We're just sitting there on the chairs and he goes, it was some late night thing. And, you know, I just created the groundlings and I figured now nah, stay at the groundlings. It turned out to be Saturday night live, you know? And so my theory was because Archie is sort of a normal looking guy that Chevy Chase was only, only one that was sort of leading man looks. The rest of those guys were all really character, you know, uh, that maybe Chevy popped out of the writing room uh, to, uh, you know, to replace Archie because he had, had gotten, you know, that I mean, it's just a theory, but uh, it's interesting how my career after so many years had come around to put those things together, you know, but Jane and Susan were great. Jane and Susan were great. Uh, um, the kids were great, you know, uh, Freddie, um, they were all, it was, it was a really wonderful experience. And I was very lucky to start with that, you know, mm. Well, so now you've already mentioned, you know, your audition for Goodfellas. Um, now you're cast in a Martin Scorsese film. I mean, what on earth was that like for you? Jeez. I was like, oh, now what? What do I? Yeah. Now what do I do? Right. <laughs> so my, my call time was like 11 o'clock at night in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. First thing that happened was that I, I was surprised that for a small role like I had those tiny three scenes. Uh I had a wardrobe call. They had they actually made wardrobe for me. I you know I had three changes of wardrobe for three different scenes, and um, so I get in my trailer and I'm looking up at the wardrobe and I don't recognize it. I'm like, oh shit, something <laughs> happened, you know. I get in a car and <laughs> De Niro gets in a car and he's wearing a piece. Of, he's wearing my wardrobe. Right. So I'm oh. sure Bobby said, Hey, I like that. And they went, Oh, sure. Bobby. <laughs> so he gets in the car and he goes, How you doing? I'm Bobby De Niro. I go, I know. He goes, <laughs> like this, <right>? <laughs> <laughs> so, so my De Niro face was created. Right. Uh, now, uh, there was, a couple really embarrassing moments, but the the biggest one was um, when they do a master shot from the front and they're punching me, you know, and um, I have to sell the punch. I have to, you know, do the stunt myself. Well, at the time I was studying martial arts and, you know, when you have a violent action like that, you release a sound there, but a key is not appropriate for, you know, <laughs> the middle of the night of a mob movie. Right. So, so, so they're hitting me and I go back to third grade. I went like this, but the sound man comes over. He goes, um, you don't have to put that sound in. We can figure that out later. I went, oh shit. I'm, oh God. You know, I was so embarrassed, you know, <laughs> and then, and then they wheel the camera around and they, start from the middle of, they pick up from the middle of the scene to take Ray Liotta's close-ups and then they come around to do De Niro's close-ups and De Niro looks at me he goes if you don't mind I don't like to start from the middle of the scene I like to start from the top I go oh a little method huh Bobby he goes <laughs> <laughs> so you know that, that was that was pretty much it there was only one, 
one other thing, you know, lunch, if your call time is 11 o'clock, lunch is like 2.30. And <laughs> they serve some kind of lasagna or something. And I didn't know when I was going to eat again. So I ate a little bit of it. But man, at 2.30 in the morning, just, you know. So I get back in the car and uh, De Niro's looking at me. He goes, what's the matter? I go, yeah, you know, I, I ate that catering. And he goes, oh, no, no, you got to go and clean. You got to go yeah. and clean. I said, you could go and clean. You got a frigging chef in, in your in your trailer. <laughs> you know, he goes. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay, all right, you already had, had been having several roles, but now, so you're in the cast, you look around, you just said De Niro, Joe Pesci, Ray Liotta. So is there a different set of expectations involved, like a, lot, a different set of nerves that you have now coming into that type of uh, production? Well, there was, but you know what? Um, I think I, I think that um, I was so afraid that I kicked into survival mode hmm. and I just sat there and went back to my training, which was improvisation. And I just stayed in the character that I was in, you know, in hmm. fact, Ray Liotta came up to me because there's one, the, the scene in the phone booth where I'm calling and I'm, I'm saying stuff on the phone, you know, you better get here. These guys mean business. Um, the stuff that I said before that was all about stuff that I researched in the book, a uh, wise guy, and I that I knew about this character that you know this was a doctor that he was talking to. The doctor needed to pay the money and blah blah blah. So Ray came up and said, oh, "Man, you did your research too." I go, "Hey man, it's a small role, but it's a big friggin' movie, <laughs> you know." So, you know, they knew that I was serious about what you know what I was there for, and I you know and and you know when when you're in a situation like that with bigger people. You give up everything to them. You let them move you around. You let them direct you. You let them do. And I'll tell you something. Even if you're the lead in something, it's good to remember that when you're coming into a scene. Because you it because acting is such a give and take. It's such a give and take, you know. And if you got a, a, only one actor giving on one side, the scene's not gonna work, you know. Um, so you know, I I I I just like I said, I think it was sort of a survival mode. Um, I didn't want to seem like a friggin' newbie, you know? And so I, I you know, I just did it and, and, and got out of there, man, you know? Well, well, I've been dying to ask someone who's worked with Martin Scorsese what it was like to be directed by Martin Scorsese. So what what, what was his style? What was his his sense of how he, how he worked with you guys? Well, he... Um, <laughs> So, so I'll give you one, the only particular little bit of direction that he gave me was he comes in the car. <laughs> so these things, they have to be choreographed to a certain extent. So De Niro gets out of the car, goes over to where he's directing from the video village. And I see the two of them talking. I see De Niro going like this. They come back to the car and Scorsese says, okay. Bobby's going to slam your head into the front seat two times. Then he pulls you back. You say the first line and then he's going to punch you and, and Ray's going to punch you. Then you say the next line, right? So two times down, boom, boom, boom. So action, boom, 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 cut. 
Scorsese comes over and I said, listen, uh, this is what I was talking about before. I don't need to do the line. I, 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 I you know, I, I didn't want to say friggin' De Niro can't count. You said two. <laughs> he smacked me three times, you know? <laughs> so, you know, either don't cut and let me do the line after the third one. I said, I said, I said you know what? I'm, I don't need to do the line. I don't need to you know. He goes, no, no, I, I want the line. I said, okay. Two times? He says, yeah, two times. I went, two times. <laughs> you know? And uh, and then after every take, De Niro would get out of the car. They'd go over. He'd go over, stand with Scorsese, and the two of them would start going, and they come back with something else different to do, you know? So uh, that's sort of what it was. It was minimal direction, except for the, you know, that fight thing. Um, but, uh, you know, because that's, I mean, you know, he he trusts his actors. And that's that's another thing that you were talking about before that sort of played on my head. Scorsese very much in the moment with everything that he does, you know? even the script sometimes comes out of an improvisation you know with us that's with this particular moment it wasn't a huge important moment but it led to an important moment them them getting you know put in jail for the first time and uh so you know he he let De Niro and 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 Ray and uh go and uh you know I'm just like I'm a prop you know (laughs) in their hands I'm a prop I do you know what you tell me to do but uh but yeah, so I didn't have any uh, any real creative, you know, direction from him hmm. because I wasn't driving the scene, you know. Yeah. Did you did you hang out a lot with uh, De Niro and Pesci off off uh, screen at all? No, Pesci wasn't there that night. He came actually because he had another scene after I think. Uh, but I no, I I sat next to Ray. It's really interesting too because I personally think. One of Rayleigh, I personally think Ray Liotta's greatest performance is in a movie called Dominic and Eugene. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but you should mm. see it. It's him and Tom Hulse. And Tom Hulse plays a, 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 a handicapped, mentally handicapped brother of Ray's. Uh, it's really a wonderful thing. It takes place outside of Pittsburgh or in Pittsburgh. Well, at the same time, we're filming Goodfellas. Um, uh, uh, Rain Man comes out. So I'm sitting there in the middle of the night. It's, you know, three o'clock in the morning in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And I said to Ray, I said, hey, Ray, man, you know, what? what's all this about Rain Man? I mean, you know, Dominic and Eugene, it's the same film is far superior to, he goes, are you kidding me? He says, Dustin Hoffman, Tom Cruise, you know, I, I, Ray Liotta. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But um, so, so, you know, that was I kind of hung out. And Ray is actually from near me in New Jersey. He's from Summit, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Summit's only about 10 miles away from Boone, you know. So, yeah, a little common ground to talk about. But right. I think Ray was on Pins and Needles, too, because that was a first big role for him, you know. Yeah. Oh, my God. I can imagine. Yeah. So now you've got these amazing credits under your belt. At, at what point in your career did you feel like you had made it? Geez, you know, I, I early on I felt like when when Botchko made me a leading man. Uh, actually, here I, I I tell you what the moment was because I I'm still was so new when I came out here and did Cop Rock, 
and it's only been in the business like four years, you know, uh, yeah. something like that. And when Cop Rock was canceled, Stephen called me up to his office and he said, uh, ABC is going to call you. Um, they want you to do a holding deal. I went, great. What's that? You know, he said, they're going to pay you this amount of money to hold you for another ABC show. I went, that that's the first time in my career I felt like I had risen to a level of desirability and accomplishment uh, that I, that, you know, that, that, that um, I was comfortable feeling that success a little bit because now that this big tragedy of cop rock was going down, um, they were willing to pay me based on my work to hold me to do something else for them, you know? Yeah. And when it comes down to a business decision like that, even though we're the creative, that's a big deal. That's a big vote of confidence uh, to have the numbers people say, that guy, we want to hold on to him, you know? And and so that was it. And then <laughs> I never ended up getting the money because Stephen put me right into civil wars. <laughs> so so they, they didn't have to keep me from going someplace else. Uh, so, uh, you know, I went right into civil wars, which, you know. Well, let's, let's talk about Cop Rock while we're on that subject, because it's, yeah. it's such a cult classic show. I watched it at the time and I, I was in. I remember being all excited about it because Stephen Botchko production, uh, he'd been responsible for Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law, Doogie yeah. Howser. So when I when yeah. I saw the first episode, I remember enjoying it, but thinking it was so different from anything else on TV that there was no way that it was going to make it. <laughs> That's, I remember thinking at the time, what, what were your thoughts when you first saw the concept? Well, first of all, I didn't, you know, my, my agent, then agent, now manager Kay called me up and said, you sing, right? I go, no, I don't sing. She goes, you sing. I said, no, I don't sing. I sang at a friend's wedding, college buddy. I, you know, I, you know, I, I sang it in the improv shows, but I'm, I'm not a singer. She goes, you sing, I'm sending you in for cop rock. So I, went, I did the auditions and actually my character Vincent LaRusso was not supposed to last past the fourth episode. When I came mm. out to California, I thought this is the time for me to, to try and make it in movies, you know? Uh, um, so LaRusso was supposed to go only four episodes mm. and then sing a love song to his gun, blow his head off. And huh. I went, wow. what a way to go out of television, you know? <laughs> and so with the original concept was that to me, I said, this is both, bizarre and dark at the same time what a great show play showcase for me you know and um but what ended up happening is the pilot episode my character ended up testing so well that it turned out that the 13 episodes were really based around me killing the cop killer in the first uh in the first uh, mm -hmm. uh in the pilot episode so, you know, uh, uh, there were other stories going on, but the main story was, you know, me getting uh, uh, getting hauled off the court, being acquitted, coming back to the force, you know, and uh, and then the show was over. But uh, but it was a uh, it was I, I I tell you the truth to this day. I, I want to win an Emmy so I can get up there and say, cop rock was the best thing I ever did. Thank you very much. You know, uh, <laughs> Because who gets to do that? My wife is an incredible singer. She has the most natural and beautiful voice. Uh, 
and she's a writer now. She's never gotten to sing. I'm a mook who sings at somebody's wedding and I get to sing three songs <laughs> on television. And you know, the pilot episode, the, the music was all written by Randy Newman. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. we had two Academy Award winners on our writing staff. Amanda McBroom, who wrote The Rose, was was on the songwriting staff and donnie markowitz who i'm still friends with wrote time of my life from dirty dancing wow. and cheryl crow you can go on youtube and put cheryl crow cop rock she sang background in two episodes of cop rock <laughs> you know so it was a moment man and it was a really great moment for all these studio singers and musicians who never got to be on camera because they were all, you know, in choruses and choirs and stuff. And it was just, I think it was just an amazing moment. I think Stephen said it the best. He said, creatively, he's very proud of it. But would he do it again? I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here it is. I just posted on my Facebook. Somebody sent me a sheet, a, a tear sheet from a newspaper in Illinois or someplace. I got it like five years ago or maybe more. It and, and it basically said before there was glee, there was cop rock. <laughs> oh man. And in Chartridge. <laughs> you, know? you know what I mean? So it was, it was definitely, and I I really believe if he had if if season if Stephen had pared it down to maybe two songs an episode, because we did five songs mm. an episode, and they were all done live. We sang all of those songs live. Hmm. oh my god uh, it was an incredible feat uh, of production too you know so uh that was just i mean you know oh and and one song that i did where i'm singing in prison they actually filmed it in a real prison and there's real prisoners coming up at the bars if you read one of those guys lips he's going fuck you homie fuck you homie <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> And I'm sitting there trying to sing. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, yeah. All look, right. That's the episode I watched this week. Actually. Yeah, so, yeah. It's on YouTube. It's it's yes. called can't, You Can't Keep a Good Man Down. Is right. it is out there? <laughs> yeah. Oh geez. man, that take that takes guts. I could never collect <laughs> if I if I feel dressed a bison. Um yeah. I, 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 there's no doubt in my mind, Botchko was a visionary, but what were your, your thoughts about him and working with him? Um, he's my mentor. He's the mm. reason I, I, I believe that he's the reason I have a career. He gave me those two shots in the beginning. I had a ton of pilots after that one went, it was a short lived sitcom and stuff, but Stephen is, is he wrote in his book. He, um, you know, He's a fan of uh, nepotism because it works, you know. <laughs> and when you when you think about it, I mean, me coming from the business world, twelve years in the business world, that practice is even more visceral here than it is in the real world because your job as a producer is to is to reduce the amount of uncontrollable variables in the mix so that you can produce a product for a profit, right? how much better off are you for hiring somebody that you've already worked with and that you know their work ethic and you know uh, the product they turn in sure. than, than in this business, you know? I mean, it's 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 personalities are your product, you know? Uh, so, so but but we, we were actually, 
we were very, I would say we were very close. We, I used to, uh, before he died, I would call him up and I'd go down like two times a year. We'd have lunch together. The last time uh, was December before he died in February. And I called him up and I, you know, he had already had his stem cell transplant. He'd done real well for two years. And now he was, you know, uh, 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 he was, he was doing pretty poorly. So I called him and I said, Hey, uh, uh, I, I know you're not feeling good, but do you still eat? And he said, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, Oh, there was a, a, a restaurant in, in the complex where he was. And we used to walk down to there and he says, I can't make it to the restaurant. I'm, I've got a walker. He goes, uh do you mind dry jewish deli sandwiches i go no that's fine you know and so i went in there and man we spent three hours together and i honestly i felt like i was talking to a buddy of mine that i you know came out here with we're talking about our families he saw my family grow up you know i saw his kids grow up you know from their teens on you know i Saw him through two marriages, you know, uh, um, and we stay friends through that because there was a lot of people in his second marriage that got dropped off. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, and I honestly, I, I felt like I, I had crossed the line from my mentor and Stephen Bochco, the the product, to you know a guy, you know, and I should have known because you know when we had when we were doing Cop Rock. When the second episode was about to air, he took us all out to a restaurant in Bel Air. And I had found out that Cop Rock was part of a $40 million deal that he had at the time. ABC gave him $40 million to create 10 shows. Cop Rock was like the second, I think Doogie Howser might have been the first. Um, so I'm a little loaded and, I, and he's in the bathroom and I walk in. He's washing his hand and I'm getting ready to go over to the stall. And I go, I go, $40 million. What the fuck is that like? Right. <laughs> he goes, <laughs> he, I might get the street wrong, but he goes, you know, he goes, I wake up every morning. I look in the mirror and I go, you're the luckiest little Jew boy from 86th street that ever lived. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I got that right, pal. <laughs> you know, but that's the kind of guy he was. He really was a regular guy, you know? Hmm. Well, yeah, well, famously, I mean, the, the head of ABC at the time, you know, who green, greenlit the show originally was Bob Iger. I know. Disney. So yeah. at what point did you start getting, it's going to get canceled. What point did the, the network start getting involved that start saying that, you know, this is not going to go? It, you know what? There, there was a sort of cloud over it. But nobody knew until Stephen walked on on the soundstage and he said, I got good news and I got bad news. And he said, uh, the bad news is we're canceled. Uh, so we still had three weeks to go to finish our order. He said, the good news is I'm going home to sleep with my wife. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that was it. You know, and um, I, that that was it. I, um, but, you know, it's funny because at, at Stephen's memorial, Bob Iger comes up to me. And he shakes, he shakes my hand. He goes, Peter, Bob Iger. I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, and he, I was waiting for him to give me the De Niro face, you know, like this. <laughs> but he, he goes, I was just talking about cop rock the other day. And I said, I've been talking about cop rock for 30 <laughs> years, <laughs> you know? Uh, 
but yeah, that was that was his call, and, you know. And so was Twin Peaks and everything. Mm-hmm. I tell you, when I really felt we were kind of screwed, and this is only because of my marketing background. They have uh, uh, what they call the upfronts, which they parade all the stars in front of the potential advertisers. And we did it for SWAT. We did it in New York at Carnegie Hall, and uh, but the one out here uh, that we did was I was finally invited to because I wasn't supposed to be a regular until after the New York thing, they, the, the network said, we need this guy. So I'm sitting at a table with the affiliates from Sioux City, Iowa. Now, these are the people that have to love the show because their news is coming on right after it. They need a lead in. They need the ad revenue, you know, and all this stuff. Kathleen Wilhoyt, in the end, I I still say this is one of the best moments in TV history. In the end of the Cop Rock pilot, and you can find this on YouTube too, Kathy Wilhoyt sings a Randy Newman lullaby to her baby and sells Mm. it into adoption for $200 drug money. And it is so poignant and visceral. It's just, it gives me goosebumps just talking about it. Well, now you could hear a pin drop. And this guy, the head of the Sioux City uh, um, affiliates, leans over and says, oh, hell, she wouldn't sing when she sells her baby. And I went, okay, we're fucked. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. Mm. On the business end, on the creative end, we did great. Actually, it did quite well in the cities. It's just, you know, uh, flyover or whatever. Nobody Mm. got it. Nobody got Mm -hmm. it. So. Well, the sh- the show has such a huge cult following now. When did you first start noticing that? Yeah, I didn't notice it until uh, John uh, Oliver uh, uh, made fun of it a couple of years ago. <laughs> then the, the 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 DVDs the DVDs sold off the shelf. I was I went I went back on to uh, I think it was Shout Factory it was a company that was selling the right. DVDs. They had no more. You know, they had no more DVDs. You know, he it was doing something i forget how he made fun of cop rock it was hilarious but uh yeah uh, you know and you know i still have people you know i have people in the business sometimes when i'll go into an audition you know somebody will come out of the woodwork and go man i loved cop rock and i'll go <laughs> that's one you know <laughs> well, you it, got- it's, yeah it's i for me it's a badge of honor and and yeah. i don't think i'll ever get a chance <laughs> to do anything that creative well, you mentioned Civil Wars right after, you know, opposite Mariel Hemingway, which is not a bad gig. So no. so, so he just cast you? Botchko just had you in mind right from the start for that? No, actually, he had me in mind for a smaller role. Um, interestingly enough, there was a role in the pilot that was uh, played by Joey Pantoliano, Joey Pants, and it was a private detective. So he had envisioned that role for me, but it was a recurring role. And uh, all of a sudden I got a call from CBS and, uh, and, and, and uh, 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 Stephen Cannell, I went and met with Stephen Cannell uh, and he wanted me to do the commish. So I didn't know that. No. Yeah. So I came back to Stephen to, to Bochco and I said, you know, you're offering me this recurring role, but I, I, I'm getting offered these leads from the other networks, you know? 
And he said, well, come on in. Let's, let's read, you know, let's read some of the lead. Let's re read some Charlie Howe. So I came in and I read and they gave me the role and wow. they did not have, uh, they did not have the lead. They had Debbie Mazur, uh, um, and, um, uh, David Marciano and Alan Rosenberg who grew up 10 miles away from me in New Jersey. So we used to finish each other's, uh, jokes. Um, and, uh, it was down to the wire. Uh, I don't know who they were thinking of, uh, but they ended up with Marielle. Yeah. And that mm -hmm. was really nice. We had a nice relationship, you know, uh, she and I, uh, um, you know, and it was so funny for me to go home to New Jersey and they're all going, Hey, Mariel everywhere. <laughs> I went, get the hell. I said, what do you think I do? Not that, that, yeah. that shit doesn't happen. It doesn't yeah. happen. You when I, I I did a I did a a scene in 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 uh, Sex in the City I did a five scenes in Sex mm -hmm. in the City with Kim Cattrall, where we're just like banging for five <laughs> scenes, you know, <laughs> and it's funny because I <laughs> I had done one more totally nude scene in uh, Tales from the Crypt, that was my first one and that was really really hard to do, um, but I developed this little sort of uh, disclaimer saying. So I get to, um, I get to do, I get to sex in the city and Kim comes up to me. She goes, thank you so much for doing this. She goes, it's so important to me to have a real actor doing these and not some of these guys, they just pull in here. You wouldn't believe it, blah, blah, blah. And I said, Kim, you know, I, I it, this is going to, it's, it's going to be great for me. I said, but listen, I said, I would like to apologize ahead of time for the presence or the lack of a response to this because I'm no hero and you're not ugly. <laughs> I oh God, this is killing. This is such great stuff to hear because I that to me in my mind. And of course I never came anywhere near um, an opportunity <laughs> like that, but that would have to be the thing I would say. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, no matter what happens, I'm really sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm apologizing, you know? And, and she said, she said, she said, wow. She goes, I've never heard that one. I go, yeah, I probably made it up, but I'm I'm serious, you know? And then, and then all her leading men, if you want to call them that, had this sort of pliable cup that was on clear plastic strings that they wore to cover their junk, you know? So, <laughs> so we're going at it. Like, you know, we're like hardcore going at it. And all of a sudden, the cup sort of pops in and pops out. And Kim goes, oh, oh. And I go, hey, I said, that was the cup. It wasn't me. It was the cup. She goes, well, maybe I liked it. I said, well, I hope you do, because we got three more hours of this shit to do. So, you know, we're stuck here, you know? <laughs> Oh, that is fantastic. My God. Well, ba just back to Civil Wars for a second. Yeah. You yeah. Negotiate your way into headlining the show. Yeah. So now are you under a different level different level of, of pressure? Um yes, uh, yes, I guess I was. Uh although that, you know, that was the first time for me to be a lead in the show. So I put some of that pressure on myself. But it's really, you know, on the writers to make it work. And that show had some problems, too. We had a mid-season uh, entry uh, because the the uh, um, 
the the network ABC just thought it was too dark. Can you imagine? You know, hmm. a family law show, civil law show like that now being too dark. But ABC was worried it was too dark. In fact, the pilot episode had Jerry Stiller played a guy from the garment district whose young wife uh, was after him for a, a divorce, right? And uh, it was the most sympathetic character. You never saw Jerry Stiller act like this. He was wonderful. And I wish people could have seen it because they just said, no, no, it's too dark. So they cut out all that stuff. And we, ref we refilmed uh, that storyline. And it was Dennis Franz playing a guy who said he was possessed by Elvis. And they made all these Elvis costumes for him. His wife was divorcing him because he was possessed by Elvis. And I mean, he was in court, man. They made, they, they made like a thousand dollar, the Eagle outfit for him and everything. And uh, so that's the, that's the storyline, the, 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 a story that aired in the pilot. But so the show had a little bit of trouble getting on the air first. So uh, I was certainly worried then having come off a canceled show, you know, but you know, Mario Hemingway should be a, a, you know, selling point. And, uh, and so I, I think because she's such a, 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 a banner personality that it was more on her, uh, the show than on me, you know, and uh, the writing was superb. It was just amazing writing. And uh, the funny thing was uh, I negotiated, we had favored nations contracts, but because Stephen offered me less than even the network said I was worth, and we kind of got up to a little bit higher level, I negotiated this contract, which would have a, a, an abnormal bump in the second season if we if we got picked up, right? So we got picked up for the second season, and Marielle calls me. She goes, "Are we going to stay out?" I go, "Wait a minute, we're not Bruce Willis, and uh, you know, <laughs> you know, we're not a number one show." You know, you know, I'll tell you what, you stay out. You can make a poker relations nightmare out of yourself because whatever you get, I'm going to get because we have a favor nations contract. <laughs> but, you you know, you're only getting the bump you're getting because we have favor nations and I negotiated that, you know. So I don't think that Stephen or anybody ever knew that we had that phone call, but we did. And uh, oh, wow. and uh, and so everything went smoothly the second season and then. Uh, and then they uh, let us go. They let us go. Uh, but that was right around, that was 1993. That was right on the cusp of cable infiltrating, you know, um, uh, the marketplace, in infiltrating mm -hmm. the viewership. If we got the numbers now that we got then, we'd be, we'd be in first place, you know. Yeah. Um, cable viewership was really starting to uh, uh, to bump up and... Uh, you know, it was interesting. It was, and then I went on to ABC show, Joe's Life, which was a comedy because I thought it would be a good, good leap. Uh, Mary Page Keller played my wife. Mimi Kennedy was in it. George DiCenzo played my brother, rest in peace. And uh, it's so funny. We go back to those upfronts, right? And uh, there's uh, uh, um, reporters are saying, so how do you feel about the fact that Civil Wars was, uh, you know, uh, uh, a... Uh, uh success uh in, 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 you know creatively but not in the ratings and they didn't know that i had a background in research 
And I launched in this recitation of the Nielsen study and raw respondents and three-pronged demographics and the presence of uh, uh, the cross-tabulation of age and income and household and looking at these people and say, you know, you do all this and you're talking about 20 people who say whether or not a show stays on the air or not, you know, in raw response. And I, it was like looking up into a barrel of trout. <laughs> Even my executive producer goes like, what the, I go, oops, sorry, that's my other life, you know? Uh, so, you know, and, and Joe's life got a, a good half a season, uh, but there were producers. Tony Danza had a show with George Foreman that took that spot, and then that oh. went off because uh, he had a bigger, he had a stronger deal. Uh, so that's the thing; people don't understand it. Shows like, and we were on up against the nanny, and we beat the nanny every week we were on. But CBS hmm. didn't have another show for that slot, so the nanny went on forever. You know, wow. but that's just yeah. yeah. I want to talk about uh, SWAT. Had you been a fan of the original series, and and what's it like to you know do something that had been a hit in an earlier version? Um, I had not seen. I don't remember seeing the earlier version, but um, I figured there's no brand stronger than Shamar Moore right now. This is a show to get, and I wasn't even supposed to be a regular. Um, I auditioned for another role, and I was back in New York, and they called me and said, "Hey." They want you for this role, Mumford. Can you get an audition? I said, no, my cousin's in 125th Street. I can't put an audition down. So they ended up using my audition for the other character to cast me as Mumford, you know. Um, now, SWAT, for me, is the thing I think that every actor, when if they want to be an actor when they're a kid, every, every kid wants to do Cops and robbers, man, shooting, jumping, rolling, yeah. doing it was great, except for I was 25 years older than everybody else. So I jacked up my training and I did everything that I did and uh, I did my own stunts and everything. And I loved it. I just loved it. In fact, I, I had wished that I'd gotten one more, one more season would have uh, helped me get my little house in Italy. But, uh, <laughs> um, but it was, it was a wonderful set and Shamar Moore was a good, uh, was a good number one on the call sheet to be working for at that time. Um, he would do things with the crew at lunchtime and he kept the morale up really well. He he was, he was good. Um, I have since, you know, uh, I've since discovered an even better, better number one. And that's Nathan Fillion. He is the greatest guy in town. Yeah. He, I, I did, I did an episode of castle. <laughs> you want to, and he can, you know, Nathan is, is a singer. He's also a performer. He's done musicals and things like that. So when I did this episode of Castle, he comes in and, and the lead woman was there and he's got on his phone, he's got my song from Cop Rock. He goes, I loved Cop Rock. I go, that's one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's how many years later I come back to do um, uh, The Rookie. And we were under uh, COVID protocols. And uh, so there's usually a hair and makeup trailer, uh, makeup on one end, hair on the other. During COVID, hair is hair, makeup is a completely different trailer. So there's two people on complete opposite ends of the trailer. That's it. So he walks down while I'm in here and he says, 
hey, do you remember me? I go, of course I remember you, man. You're like one of the only people in town that love cop rock. He goes, I did. I loved it. He goes, it's so great to have you here again. I said, great. So I get my hair done. I go off to makeup, which takes another half an hour or whatever. I get to my trailer and there is uh, a Bluetooth speaker in a gift bag with a beautiful note saying something like, I always feel like I'm lucky to work with someone so talented. If I get to do it a second time, I must be doing something oh, right. So I must be doing something right. And I, I, my kid, my, my oldest son is in the business and his wife is an actress. I showed him this note. I said, you get to be number one on a call sheet. This is the way you act. Mm. You know, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's wow. incredibly sweet. You know, I have to ask about this is us. The show became a phenomenon and, and here's a credit to you, you as an actor, because every woman that I told that you were going to be on all said the same thing. Oh, I hated him. So how'd you, how'd you become involved in that show? Well, I auditioned for it, but you know, what was interesting was that Tim Busfield uh, is now married to someone I'm very close to Melissa Gilbert. Um, Tim Busfield was, and I know Tim from back in the days when we were uh, all at ABC, he was at uh, uh, 30-something, and uh, and I know uh, 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 the executive producer was um, Ken Olin uh, of, of This Is Us. He's the executive producer. And Ken, which remind me to give you a beautiful story about Ken. Uh, Ken uh, was a Bochco boy before he got 30-something. He, he did uh, Space City Blues or something else. Uh, so he was a Bochco boy. So, um, uh, you know, um, I auditioned for it and Tim and Ken got together and they said, let's, let's, have, let's get Peter, you know? So they put me on, it was only, it's only a guest star role, but it became a lot more than it was supposed to be because it informed so much of what the lead character was and who he was and what he overcame. And to me, that was the beauty of this is us is that, this is us showed everybody, and I don't mean everybody in the urban areas, I mean everybody in the flyovers, that we all have these Barney expression fuck ups in our lives, people and situations that 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 screw with us. Some people die with them, some people overcome them and make their life a success. And I think that's the beauty of the show. Through the flashbacks you showed what happened to these people and you showed the ones that overcame it and you showed the ones that didn't, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I think psychologically, if I wish I had a degree in psych, but I, I think that's the value of the show, you know? And, uh, and so I, you know, I, I started doing the show and, uh, and it was really interesting because to me, because people hated that character, but that character was very, very, very much, except for the drinking and abuse, he was exactly what my father was, who raised my our family in the 50s and early 60s. He was a hard worker, came home, put his check on, on the table, and watched TV and, and maybe drank a beer. My father didn't drink beer, whatever. So aside from the alcoholism, that's what these guys did. And, and you know, I, I remember doing one episode where you discover Nikki for the first time. He sits up in a car. We're driving to go fishing, and I stop at a bait shop, and there's booze in there, so I end up staying in there, right? And I leave the kids in the car when I'm going in to buy bait. The two directors, a husband and wife, or, or 
partners, they said, what a, what a piece of shit, you know, these, I said, Hey, my father had a small construction company. When he took me on estimates because my mother couldn't take care of us, I stood on the front seat of that car while he, for an hour sometimes while he was doing his estimates, he came back and we drove home or we drove for whatever we drove for. I said, Parent, that's, you can't look at that character through the prism of today's values sure. and today's, you know, parenting, parenting philosophies. It's not, it, it's not going to work. You know, yes, he was tough and he was bad with the drinking and stuff, but he wasn't as bad as you're making him out to be because he was a father of that period in history, you know? Hmm. Uh, you, so, so, you, have to, you said to remind you about the Ken Owen story. Yeah. So yes, <laughs> when we when we first got here um, to L.A., uh, my wife Jeanette, her her and her partner Mimi Friedman, their first writing job, their very first writing job uh, was on uh, the first season of In Living Color. Okay, wow. so they got nominated for an Emmy, their first job here. So we got to go to the Emmys that year. Well, that year was the year that 30-something just wiped the floor with everybody. They got best actor. They got best support. They got best show. They got everything that year. Now, after the presentation, there's a big banquet. And Jeanette and I are sitting, we're sitting close to the door because you know, the show wasn't that important, but it did, you know. Um, and I have to... Uh, uh, um, preface this by saying that Stephen Bochco, like I said, his his little nepotism and his group, his friends that he kept close. Mm -hmm. Cop Rock had not yet aired. That was the, that was a season for Cop Rock. Um, Stephen would screen that pilot for everybody that he liked and loved and whose opinion he, uh, um, you know, he appreciated. And Ken was one of his guys. So he had screened the pilot for Ken. And I didn't know this. So we're at the dinner and the doors open up. And man, everybody starts. To, it's 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 the whole cast of, of, uh, of um, 30 something. And everybody starts to stand up and clap. Now I'm close to the door. Before I can stand up, Ken comes over to me. And his moment of glory pushes me down in my seat, wraps his arm around my neck and goes, I saw Cop Rock. Your work was fantastic. Uh -huh. So when I got on the set, 30 years later of This Is Us, I said, you did something to me that I vowed to do if I was ever in the same position for the rest uh -huh. of my career. He said, what do I do? And I told him, he doesn't remember it, but I do. <laughs> oh, yeah. We When when we get those um, special gifts from 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 um, our peers we it's yeah. hard to forget them even if they don't remember them so i yeah i can yeah. identify with that in a big way yeah well you've you've been in so many roles appeared in so many series what are you most recognized for is it this is us because it's the most recent or you keep bringing up cop rock people people keep coming back to that no you know <clears throat> actually it's swat oh really, really? SWAT. yeah huh. yeah you know uh I mean, I mean, SWAT just made such a big splash, you know, and it's so recent. In fact, I just took my family. I just had a big birthday 
this May. And so in June, I took my entire family, my sons and their wives and, and Jeanette, and I took them all to Italy. And it happened to be the same week that SWAT broke on Netflix. Okay. So I left my cousins in Frosinone and drove down, every, everybody drove down to Ravello on the Amalfi Coast, beautiful spot. And I parked my car and I'm pulling in my son, which had the rest of the group in there. And this guy's looking at me and I'm like, I don't know what he's looking at, you know, because, you know, these guineas, <laughs> which I'm one of. Um, so I get the car parked and he comes over. He's got his phone out. He goes, Senor Honorati, this is you. I said, yes. He goes, I love a SWAT. I love it. Take a, take a picture. <laughs> and all over friggin' Italy, people were coming up to me about SWAT. We took a day in Positano. This, this, this is the perfect the perfect foil. We take a day in Positano and we're get, waiting for the ferry to come back. Um, and I said to Jeanette, I said, we're going to have a little gelato, right? So I sit down and have a gelato and the waiter's looking at me and he goes, you? I said, yeah. He goes, oh, I'll take a picture with you. So he takes a picture. He has his underling. He's training somebody. You take a picture. The underling says, I want to take a picture too. This woman is walking by. She's Danish or something. She goes, my daughter loves SWAT. Will you take a picture with me? You know, so I'm taking a picture with her. This other guy walks by. He goes, I want a picture too. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh my God. Oh my God. But yeah, and this is us. This is us was, was great for the, the creativity and being able to create such a character, such a great character, you know, th who, had some some fleck of empathy you know in there mm -hmm. but 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 you know was just you know and it's funny i wish they had paid tribute to it because you see the one episode where the second child is born nikki we have beautiful scene me and and the the little boy the little boy who plays uh jack milo his name the little boy's name is milo mm -hmm. he's a gorgeous little kid and we see my father come in, played by Ironside, um, um, Michael Ironside. Mm. Um, and he offers me a drink. And I say, come on, you, you know I don't drink, you know? So there's something missing that turned this guy into an alcoholic. Mm. And I was hoping mm. by the end of the show, they pay tribute to that. But it wasn't important enough. They got what they needed out of the character to set Jack off on his journey, you know? Wait. We do want to ask you about a couple, uh, a few of the people that you you worked some legends in the business, and you know just legends. Period. That we want to ask you about some of them. Like, let's want to start with Chuck Norris. What was that like? That was one of the best jobs I've ever had, and my agents kept telling me, "Don't do that." You know, that's where careers go to die. Blah blah blah. And it's funny because Ellen Burstyn, who's a friend of the family, was here for Thanksgiving, and I said to her, "You know, my my agents are telling me not to do this thing." She goes do you like the character? And I go, man, I love the character. She said, hmm. it's about to work. And I went, okay. Yeah. So I show up on a set and Chuck Norris comes up to me. He goes, Peter, um, I really admire your work. He said, if there's anything you want to do, if you want to change a line or anything like that, he says, just come to me. He said, we'll, we'll make it happen. I said, Jesus, Chuck, thanks. That's, that's incredible. I said, there is something. I said, my character, I said, I, I study martial arts. I can do martial arts. I said, but my character is this New York cop who is a fish out of water. I said, wouldn't it be great if 
my stuff was all just street fighting. Well, the stunt coordinator was standing next to Chuck and he was going, oh my God, because he got to do something besides martial arts, you know? And I ended up breaking a bottle over a guy's head, wrapping a a cord around this guy's neck. Oh, oh, it was just wonderful. (laughs) So much fun. And and it was, and I got, I got to be pretty good friends with Clarence Gilliard at the time. Uh, mm. Another rest in peace just recently, but uh, um, yeah, it, it was, it was fantastic. He was, I never met a guy who was a, a bigger personality who was more deferential to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. All yeah. right. Now Al Pacino. <laughs> Pacino was funny. He's, uh, you know, uh, he. We were doing the Iceman Cometh. We were supposed to take it from here. It was a staged reading, but you know who was in it? Bruno Kirby was in it. Uh, Michael Jeter was in that production. We were supposed to take this to Broadway, but Kevin Spacey sort of usurped us. He was doing the production in London, so we were the last two guys to go on. I was the last guy to go on before uh, Al in in the Iceman Cometh. And he would come out in the hallway and we'd go, he go, Pete, what are they doing, babe? What are they doing? I go, I don't know, Al. Why don't you say something? Because I ain't saying shit. You know, I'm not going to tell anybody to speed it up. You could tell somebody to speed it up, you know. But, um, and I brought him a Cuban cigar one time. He goes, thanks, babe. Thanks. You know, <laughs> you know, <it> was... <laughs> but, you know, listen, I have to, I, I have to give you this because I, <laughs> I, I, came across this theory that there are um two schools of italian character acting there's the de niro school and the pacino school now i'm gonna ask you i don't know if it's gonna work on zoom but i'm gonna ask you to ask me a simple question like what's your name and we'll do the pacino school first ask me a simple question like (laughs) so what's your name what's my name Pacino looks away before he does every line. Now, same question, De Niro. Um, excuse me, what's your name? What's my name? <laughs> De Niro takes, he goes back all the so Pacino, boom, looks to the side, De Niro goes back, and they repeat the line, right? Now, watch Andy Gar- watch Andy Garcia. Andy Garcia is graduated at Pacino School. Andy Garcia never delivers a line until he looks away first and does this. No? <laughs> oh, you're you're bending my you're bending my brain now because I can picture all of it. This is going to make watching these films again so much more fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have a couple yeah. couple more names before uh, Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd, I you know I didn't have much to do with him, but he was he, you know. He was a machine. He just, you know, he just comes on and does his thing and uh, and, and goes. In fact, I was actually up for the role that Christopher Lloyd got. I auditioned for the lead in that film and they called me back and said, uh, we got Christopher Lloyd. And I went, well, I guess you got to go with Christopher Lloyd then, right? <laughs> he said, would, would you would you come back and play one of the fathers? And I said, yeah, sure. You know, I'll you know, come back, you know. And uh, Jonathan Prince uh, directed that. And uh, I didn't know they were going to have me eat a dirt sandwich. But, uh, you know. But, yeah, I, I was so psyched. In fact, uh, I, I can't, I don't know if I can, I can't say that. Yes. I, they, they really wanted me 
to do the lead until you know chris lloyd walked right into it then oh mm, wow yeah all right yeah. how about uh how about tom Selleck? i didn't get to work with him i was i was with Wahlberg on on those scenarios mm. uh, i didn't get to okay. work with tom on blue okay. bloods yeah i didn't get yeah. to work with tom mm. i heard good things about tom but i don't i don't know there was yeah. like two more james con james con interesting james con was best my cousin oh man so in 1975, when I graduated college, I went off, I signed a free agent contract in the World Football League. Mm -hmm. uh, I ended up getting cut. And that was the year the league went down, not because I was cut, but anyway. <laughs> so I came out here and uh, kind of cracked up a little bit. And I was living with my cousin and she was married to a guy named Walter Scott, who was top stunt coordinator here and best friends with James Kahn. I never met Jimmy then or whatever, but flash forward, how many years, like 40 years, I'm doing, uh, I'm doing this, this, this show with, with Vegas, with James Kahn. And he was, you know, I don't think Jimmy wanted to do TV, but you know, uh, he was doing it. He was taking a paycheck and stuff. So he was a little kind of a little aloof, you know? Mm. And I said, Hey, Hey, uh, Jimmy, I said, uh, you remember my uh, ex-cousin-in-law, uh, Walter Scott? He goes, Walter, he said, I just played cards with him the other night. He's what? I said, well, my my cousin was Carol, his first wife, you know. Uh, oh, my God. And then from then on, boom, wow. you know, it was, it was fun, you know. But, but you know, he he had to be, you know, because he's Jimmy Kahn. You know, he had, he had to be a machine. He had to be productive. He had to get in and out of there. He couldn't do that with everybody anyway, you know, even if, whether or not he was, predisposed to you know hmm. well one more and someone yeah. we both worked with and i'm dying to hear about your experience with him william shatner <laughs> well i was further away from shatner uh it was you know but but he was i mean when he comes on a set you know it it just <laughs> the whole set just goes boop, 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 like this you know <laughs> He doesn't have to do anything. He just sits there. He's such a personality. It's incredible. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, Spader, but Spader was the one I was one-on-one -on -one with and Shatner was sort of just sitting in the room. But I do have a, a story about, about Shatner that I, I think I can share. Um, and my hairstylist, uh, Jason Sika uh, from uh, Civil Wars, uh, he had done some sort of movie or something with Shatner one time. And, and Jason told me that he stood behind Shatner and in the mirror, he was the hair guy. And he was like, he's like this. He was like, um, uh, oh, uh, okay. So what do we want to do with the piece? And Shatner goes, what piece? Oh, <laughs> Jason geez. goes, Okay. <laughs> there you go oh my gosh <laughs> so he's the only one who's like still denying that he's he's actually got one <laughs> yeah yeah right <laughs> so before we let you go we do want to discuss what's going on now in hollywood and you've posted about this a lot on your social media the the writers yeah. and actors strike so yeah. what are some of the reasons for it, what's going on? And I've also seen many actors talk about the problem with AI, which I know from the author's side that it's being discussed in publishing as well. But can you talk a little about the, the overall reasons for the strike? Well, I mean, you know, it's re regular uh, um, 
overall reasons, wages and working conditions. Mm -hmm. And this has to do a lot with, you know, with, with streaming. Uh, you know, the problem with our business is um, every new technology that comes out there, are, we have no jurisdiction over because the last contract, that technology did not exist or the venues like streaming or anything like that. So we need to organize that part of the business. And I don't know what specifically they're asking for with streaming and everything, but I will tell you this. And I posted this on, on, on Facebook a month ago, I got a check for 90 showings of SWAT. This was, I don't know how many episodes, but it was three, sh three showings in different venues of each episode. It wasn't even all the episodes I did, but it was 90 showings in particular between streaming and video and DVD, whatever. 90 showings and I cleared $648. Mm, wow. Okay. Uh, and, and, and in terms of AI, I honestly feel, well, you know, but, but look, look at what's happening in our country anyway, how people get duped by certain individuals and things anyway. I, 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 I felt originally that AI is just a collection of data. AI didn't get kicked out of Catholic school or beat up by the public school's kids for being a Catholic school kid. <laughs> AI didn't, didn't have those experiences and those emotions. They can collect the data uh, uh, that is written about those and create a story. But they'll never get it exactly right, you know, uh, because the journey that put that, those words on the page is, is, is what's most important. Again, there are a hundred million people in this country who believe certain individuals about certain things who won't know the difference between AI and anything else, you know, so that's a danger. So in some ways there has to be protections. There has to be, it's, it's basically, you know, this one thing that they wanted to do with taking, taking a shot of, of a, a, an extra or atmosphere or whatever they call it and using that to generate extras for the rest in perpetuity that's identity theft <laughs> you know that's that's what that is so i mean that's a tricky subject ai but it's got to be organized and uh and and so do you know the other outlet outlets that are that our product you know i had an idea i put it out to you guys i haven't put it out in, in public yet to friends because i don't know because my as i said my mba my mba was in marketing <clears throat> I hate finance. I hate it. I just not my subject, you know. Um, there are with each production of a show, there are various production entities. There's the studio's production entity. There's the stars like Shamar probably has a production entity. There's the creator of the show's production entity. There's like three, at least three production entities that produce one show. Now, I worked at Ford Motor Company how many years ago? 50 years ago? Ford had a stock option program. Every dollar of stock that you bought, they matched with a dollar, okay? So my theory is, and again, I don't think the studios will ever agree to this, but it seems like a fair way to do things. Take those three production companies and put them in an overall entity that for that show and issue stock to the actors based on 
their position on the call sheet and maybe even get down to guest stars and stuff so that the ancillary revenues that flow to that vehicle, when they sell it to different venues, inflates the price of those people who have participated, inflates the price of their stock. They can sell their stock and be out of it, sell their stock back to the company and take the money and run. Then you have no problems. You still have a, a small residual. You know, you don't have to bump up the residual so high if these people have stock in the product that they've created. So that's that's my idea, you know. I think it'd have know, a very this... difficult time getting, you know, production yeah. to give that sure. <laughs> but yeah. you know, sure. every 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 new idea is yeah. is is fraught with uh, resistance, you know, mm -hmm. until until someone realizes, oh my gosh, right? You know, it it it's helpful in another uh, at another end of it at the same time. Yeah. You know, there has yeah. to be a mutual benefit at the same, yeah. you know, overall. But I I think that's 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 fascinating. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just to reiterate what you said, uh, people have asked me about the strike and and I, you know, I go back to like, oh, God, a long way um, to the two bit, two huge ugly strikes we had, you know, um, where it was, first of all, cable television and VHS. Right. And the next one was, was about DVDs, because like you said, that's what people don't get. New yeah. technology, there's no accommodation for it, even though they put in that global clause of like all future you know yeah. formats blah 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 blah. that's yeah. too general and vague and it yeah. and it doesn't work and streaming's been very confusing for me in terms of how all the um you know the revenue works so you know even though i'm retired i live in florida of course i'm 100 percent supportive of of what you guys are needing to do and, and it's critical it has to happen yeah. every so often and it's rough it's tough on people right. you know but yeah. uh we'll survive and and you guys will survive and and everyone will be better off for it so anyway glad well, you're uh, you know, my, yeah my yeah my my thing is this i was just telling somebody this the other day because somebody said something about bob Iger. i go you know what i know bob Iger. he's partially responsible for my career bob Iger is towing the company line he's saying what he has to say i said if people would just stop saying what they have to say and start talking to each other i said because here's what happens um any I was on the board of, of Screen Actors Guild back in 2003 for a couple of years. And my first foray into politics, whether it be union or whatever. And I realized something. Any agreement, any signed agreement that you come to, nobody's happy, but we move forward. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now nobody's happy and nobody's talking. Yeah. You know? So that's that's not productive let's get back to talking and let's get back to something we can agree to and not be happy you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll end it off yes you're working on next uh i <laughs> i'm uh you know i wrote a play um that um uh, got me my both my wife and i Jeanette and i are, are members of the actor's studio but i wrote this play and i submitted to the playwright director's unit and they admitted me to the unit based on that play so uh, I won't be doing it, but I'd like to get it produced someplace. So I might start sending it around. It's been a couple of years since since we workshopped it at the studio. But uh, um, right now, that's it. I'm 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 doing some writing, but mostly I'm working out in the yard, you know, or vacuuming under the bed, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I it's funny you should mention this because I got up this morning thinking. You know, I should just start looking at some sides and make sure, you know, just start practicing a little bit, you know, and and, and doing things. But uh, 
but yeah, not, not much, not much going on. And uh, I'm okay with that. My three sons are married. Uh, one's going to have a baby in November. And Oh, congrats. congrats. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm okay. And in fact, I saw Sean Ryan at the, at the, the uh, strike the other day. And I said to him, you know, I was supposed to go up for this show that you were writing. He was writing a show on Netflix. I said, but I couldn't get the audition. And he said, don't worry. He says, we'll work together again. I said, good. I said, because now I'm working for myself. I already paid my kids college off and I kept my house. Now I'm working for myself, you know? So. Well, from my money, every, every show is better and we'll be with you in it. So. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Well, again, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Like I said, at the top, I'm a big fan. So it was a, such a treat to get to hear all your stories. Thanks. That's that's really nice, you guys. Thanks a lot. Well, I'm Jonathan Rosen, along with Ike Eisenman. This has been Pop Culture Retro. And again, a very special thanks to Peter Honorati. And please subscribe. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Retro, where no one was hurt during the making of this podcast. <laughs>